You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Okay, run it down. Can you feel the love? La, 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 la. Can you feel the love? Support for the Projection Booth podcast comes from Stitcher Smart Radio. Now podcast listeners can access the latest episodes of the Projection Booth and thousands of other podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Stitcher instantly delivers episodes of your favorite shows to your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio can be found in the iPhone and Android app stores or on the web at stitcher.com slash booth. Mr. Jonathan, behind the wheel, he's got the feel. This dud is no dud. He's bad. He's mean. He's a loving machine. He's the height of fashion, the peak of passion. Sends gangsters crashing and women thrashing. Black shampoo. He's got the touch they love so much. You tell Mr. Jonathan that I left. If he won't do me, nobody will. Does Mr. Jonathan make house calls? Hello, ladies. Artie taking good care of all of you? Artie just didn't have the equipment you have. He gives each pet a washing set. Men can't get him off their backs. Women can't get him out of their hair. Jonathan. Hello, Mr. Jonathan. This is our new receptionist. You like her? Wonderful, wonderful. God, she'll never drown. Well, I told you to watch who you're in it to, too, Danda. Hand me that thing. Hang him down. I'm going to give you the thrill of your lifetime. Don't give him no sass or he'll kick your ass. A woman entices. A chainsaw slices. He's mad. He's mean. He's a killing machine. Let him give you a black shampoo. Black shampoo. A Graydon Clark production starring John Daniels and Tanya Boyd. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me in the salon is Rob St. Mary. Do me a favor. Just take a little off the sides. Also along for the ride this week is my old friend, Leon Chase. Hey, Mike. Exactly what kind of funny farm are you are you running here? Funny farm? Just who do you think you are? I ought to call the police. This week we're talking about my most favorite film in the whole world, Graydon Clark's Black Shampoo. Released in March 1976, the film tells the tale of Jonathan Knight, the hottest hairdresser on the Sunset Strip. He's a Lothario who doesn't know that true love sits at his receptionist's desk until his receptionist, Brenda, is taken away by the dastardly Mr. Wilson. Mr. Wilson? I never heard of anybody by that name. 
From there, Jonathan goes from a loving machine to a killing machine, the screen exploding in a fury of chainsaws, pool cues, and curling irons. We are dropping this episode on Christmas 2013, which is only fitting because every December 26th, I celebrate the anniversary of the first time I saw Black Shampoo with a group of friends. The first time was 25 years ago, way back in 1988, and one of those friends was Leon Chase. Leon, do you care to take us back to that fateful first viewing? I think our favorite group pastime at that point was probably uh, taking trips to the video stores and uh, watching movies communally. And I think we always tried to find the most screwed up thing we could find. And um, if I may take credit, I think I actually um, found Black Shampoo at the Blockbuster. Is that right? It was definitely at the Blockbuster there, Dix and Eureka. Uh-huh. And I... I know I wasn't involved. I, I know that you and Steve kind of came over to me with the video box in hand. So I don't know if it was you or Steve Chesney that found it first, but definitely one of you. And definitely I was not one of them. I like to imagine we had it under a large trench coat, but I probably made that part up. Yes, I still have a uh, VHS copy with that particular cover art of Jonathan looking very pensive with Brenda's leaning her head against his shoulder. We brought that uh, to Steve's house, and we watched it. And I remember just, I mean, anyone who watches this movie, as soon as you get into the opening scene, you just know that you're you're in for a ride, so to speak. And I, I remember us, like, I think we probably, like, started calling people, like, halfway through that movie. I know we, we watched it and then instantly showed it to other people we knew, like, that night. Like, went to other people's houses and were like, you need to see the beginning of this movie. And that really kind of started what what I consider like our own little uh, cult following for that movie. Yeah, if memory serves, it was a very snowy night and very mm-hmm. dangerous to be out driving in. <laughs> and I seem to remember kind of careening around Sibley Road going into uh, Jeff Dunlap's uh, subdivision and trying to take the film to him to show him this, this wonderful new thing that we had found. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was definitely some fishtailing in your car that night. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> My car did a lot of fish stealing in those <laughs> days. Yeah, and ever since then, we've been trying to kind of uh, spread the gospel of black shampoo. It's one of these, uh, I think I compared it to Amway today, where <laughs> whenever we get together with people, you always try to show it to new folks. So we've mm-hmm. had many black shampoo parties over the years, even had a black shampoo party at yes, one time. And always trying to get the virgins in the audience to <laughs> expose them, uh, so to speak, to Mr. Jonathan and the power of his hairdryer. I always describe it to my friends as our own personal Rocky Horror. We never stood up in front of the screen and acted it out, but we definitely had our own kind of characters and everything. We all kind of took it upon ourselves to learn the lines. We all became responsible for certain characters. And, you know, it was also that, <clears throat> I'm going to sound like the old man now, but... It was really that era of you had to you had to have the tape. There was an object and there was a communal thing that happened about you were in a room and you had to put the tape in and you watched it with people. And that was just that was a big part of it. The story itself was rather compelling and it was <laughs> as as one of I I can't remember whose father it was that came downstairs while we were watching it one time and started <laughs> describing it as a softcore. Uh, but yeah, it's the it encapsulates a lot of action, comedy, drama. A uh, little bit of nookie going on, yes. and really, uh, yeah, it, it it 
meant a lot for us. So Rob, as kind of a, a stranger to this madness, now I know you'd seen Black Shampoo before, but what were your thoughts when you first saw it? Well, the first time I saw it actually was right after I met you. I was working at the public radio station in Detroit. I talked to you about Impossible Funky, the Cashiers to Cinema collection. And at the then Burton Theater, you held a screening, book signing, of your book and a screening of Black Shampoo, which included getting Graydon Clark on the phone. We could barely kind of hear him through the sound system there. But that was my first experience watching it. And uh, I don't know how many people were in the audience that day, but it was it was great to see it because it was something that when I got your book and I met you at the station, I was just amazed at how much ink you gave it in your book. Like, this was just an obsessive thing. Like, you had all these interviews and all this various stuff in there. I was like, well, I guess I got to see this thing. I've got to go to this event so that I can understand what Black Shampoo is all about. And do you now understand what it's all about? Not on the personal level for me. I mean, I enjoy it. (laughs) Uh, I enjoy it. It's a good film. It's fun to watch. But I understand that there's sort of another level on top of it. And the only film that I can think of that is similar for me with my friends was, and I've talked about it on the show, was the 13 viewings of Pulp Fiction in the theater during that summer, where we just got obsessive about it and we mapped it out and we had diagrams explaining how to, you know, put the film in chronological order and, like, we would just go see this thing. It was like a combination of obsession to go see it and the fact that my house didn't have air conditioning. So it was cheaper to just go hang out in the movie theater for three hours and uh, just keep watching Pulp Fiction over and over again that summer. Sounds like you're kind of hanging around with the same wild crowd that I was when I was in high school. <laughs> yes, yes. The, 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 the AV club, the movie geeks, exactly. Yeah, we weren't really too much into like drinking and smoking and causing too much trouble, too much trouble. But yeah, definitely hanging out and watching movies was where it was at for us. My high school years were basically consumed with being in a band, music, watching movies, and putting together, at least in my senior year, because I was so bored with classes, putting together an underground student newspaper. So that was that was basically it. That was way cooler than us, really. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure if I discovered this movie at maybe 25 or 35, if I would have been quite as obsessive. So it's, it's hard for me to separate the movie from the age we were when we saw it. And, you know, we're at that age, much like Rob's stories, like you just you, you want something to latch on to and you kind of make it your own. And you have a lot of time and energy to be obsessive about things. Yeah. And this was what, like uh, we were both... I think sophomores going into junior year or juniors going into senior year, 88 would have been, and we graduated in 90. Yeah. So, so and this was winter of 88. So I guess it was juniors. Yes. Yes. And so, yeah, we had a lot of time on our hands uh, <laughs> at that point. Usually I'm pretty good when it comes to remembering where I watch things, especially movies and theaters. I can think of exactly, you know, oh, I was in Theater 2 at the AMC Southland when I saw this particular movie. And I can think, when I cast my mind back to Black Shampoo, I can think of so many houses that I've watched Black Shampoo in over the years. I mean, I can think of your house up in... Uh, Ypsilanti. Yes. I can think of uh, Chorky's house in East Lansing. I mean, uh, so many people that just, you know, moved in and out of our lives mm-hmm. in high school and past that, just taking this tape everywhere we went and 
trying to, to spread the joy. What do you think it is? Why, why did we come back to this particular film out of all the movies that we watch? Why this one? What was the, the magic? For those who don't know me, I'm a bit of an apologist for a lot of exploitation movies. But um, this one in particular, I think that in general, the best exploitation movies are a combination of a really outrageous premise and outrageous scenarios, but also fairly decently made on a technical level. And really, for whatever else we want to laugh at with this movie, it's not horribly cut considering the, the time it was made and, and the budget they had. Um, the cinematography, you're probably going to touch on that, but it's actually, there's some decent technical elements to it. So it's not like, it's not like some w- movies where they're just awful and you, you, you love the trailer and you love that the movie exists, but it's very hard to actually sit through that entire movie. And I, I don't have that experience with this, even watching it for the what 200th time or whatever yesterday, it's still, it moves. It's, Yes, it's silly, and there's a lot of crazy lines, and some of the acting's kind of, you know, maybe not uh, Oscar material. But f- for the most part, it's 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 a good combination to me of ridiculous stuff, but also like fairly well executed. Like it's still watchable. The thing that I always think of when I think of Black Shampoo is just the the amount of mirror shots that they had, which mm-hmm. usually you don't do in an exploitation film because you're always you know, if you think about like Dolomite, I mean, the boom mic is, is a co-star in that film. <laughs> and in this one, I don't really, you know, it, it is well made. I, I don't remember any kind of boom shots or anything going on. And, and there's a lot of mirror shots, which mm-hmm. to me kind of speaks to the duality of Mr. Jonathan as both this Lothario and this lover guy, the loving machine and the killing machine, as it were. Ah. And definitely we have read a lot of stuff into this film throughout the years you know such as the the dark flower that mr wilson crushes Mm. up in his hand and just the the power that he has over brenda at that point in the film but yeah to your point it it definitely has its technical merits uh i i have to say that i think sometimes richard one of mr jonathan's assistants Mm. that he might not be the best actor in the entire (laughs) world her hair is a fright you're right, Artie, baby. She should have came in here first. And there are a few flub lines here and there. I know there's one from Skippy Lowe, um, Jonathan's other assistant, towards the beginning. And I think that uh, Maddox might blow one of his lines at one point. But, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, it's, you're shooting this thing in 12 days. So it's definitely, it's it's better than it really has any right to be in a lot of ways. Exactly. Like, the things that you're talking about, I, I really... I'm very sympathetic to what it took to make a low-budget movie at the time, and having read the director's book, I know that they really did a lot of this stuff in one take, and I think a lot of what's awkward is stuff that if they had a bigger budget, you you never would have seen. I, I'll tell you, the other thing that I noticed re-watching it is, even for the black exploitation genre, which was already, by nature, more, quote, far out than the mainstream stuff at the time, this movie's still really far out. I mean, it's... The premise is... This sex machine who apparently is such a good lover slash hairdresser that these this bevy of women can't resist him. And, you know, I mean, they're obviously like there's a little bit of laughing going on in that first scene. Like we're not expected to take this like completely serious as social commentary or anything. And it's not as as sort of like rough and street as a lot of the other sort of black exploitation stuff at the time. Yeah, Mr. Jonathan is definitely not Mr. T from Trouble Man or or Superfly or Shaft or anything. He does have a sense of humor about himself, that whole line about having a little bit of experience with 
you know, being 30 and all that, you know, kind of good building of the character, the way that, you know, Brenda's looking at him with a little bit of a wry grin on her face and everything. It knows what it is and it has a sense of humor about it. Though, as you get into the film, for me, I really invest in the characters. So, Rob, you saw Shampoo, which I have never actually sat through all the way. How does Black Shampoo compare to Shampoo? You would think of all films I would have seen Shampoo, but (laughs) I, I never have been able to do it. The one good thing about Shampoo is that it is Hal Ashby. I like Hal Ashby. I mean, if you're not familiar with who he is, you know, director of Being There and uh, Harold and Maude, uh, Last Detail, and uh, Robert Downey Sr., when we had him on, talked about Hal Ashby, who was good friends with him. But Shampoo's kind of a low spot in his career uh, for me. I mean, I think that at the time when it came out, it was probably hip and, you know, an important film. But um, I just don't think it holds up almost 40 years on. Uh, I would rather watch Black Shampoo any day compared to the Warren Beatty film. It's just very slow. It's not very funny. It's supposed to be. Um, and basically the whole premise is Beatty wants to open the salon. He's a hairdresser. He's working for someone. He wants to open the salon. He's got like ladies all over the place. So there's that Lothario aspect. And... It's sort of a social satire of the late 60s, but I think by 1975, it's kind of, I don't know, it just doesn't seem as interesting today as it maybe did then. Yeah, I do appreciate that Mr. Jonathan already owns his own business, Mm -hmm. that he's a successful black businessman, you know, employing two very flamboyant homosexual, basically they're, they're almost his partners in trade. When he has to go out and see Mrs. Simpson, he has no problem turning one of his other clients over to Richard. He knows that Richard's skill in hairdressing is impeccable, so no problem there. So it's nice to see that there is this relationship. I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes I cringe at some of the you know more flamboyant gay stereotypes and everything, but then I have to remind myself that this is mid-70s, so that we are going to have some of that baggage still going on. Yeah, it is a little bit over the top. That was one thing at times that I put in my notes is the stereotype is cranked way up. Now, I understand that Skippy Lowe is a character unto himself. Like, he had this public access show in L.A. and was sort of a you know celebrity talk host. And he had a certain persona, which my understanding is he was the basis for Martin Short's Jiminy Glick character that he had that talk show. Um, so there is this persona that he has. It's just at times it just felt a little too amped up compared to Jonathan, who is much more straight level. Like he's not playing a uh, real hip daddy o, you know, black exploitation character, which we have seen in other black exploitation films. Yeah, Jonathan is so laid back that at times it almost feels like he's asleep, <laughs> <laughs> especially when he's with um, Mrs. Carruthers. Mrs. Carruthers, Sally Carruthers. And having just, you know, kind of serviced her and she is moaning to beat the band. And it's, I believe it's Mrs. Carruthers that we're seeing in the the opening credits who uh, gets to uh, have the first line of the film over the incredible music number that is going on. One of many incredible music pieces, uh, which is also, I guess, one of the reasons why we go back to this film time and again. To see her, she's she's very passionate 
about uh, what is happening to her, but really Jonathan doesn't even seem to be moving at that point. But perhaps that just kind of speaks to his prowess with the ladies. Oh, oh Jonathan. Oh, Jonathan. That's so good. Oh, yes. Oh, Jonathan. Oh, oh, Jonathan. Oh, oh Jonathan. Oh, so we were discussing the same thing i i watched this with some some friends yesterday and you know you you want to believe that yes like jonathan's that good that he doesn't even have to move and she's going wild i'm also curious if maybe that had something to do with um the rating system you know i know that there are like certain lines like I don't know, maybe it was like, yeah, we can show these people naked, but if he moves his butt too much, we it gives us an X or something. Like, I'm, I'm curious if that was what was going on there, or if that was just Jonathan's choice, or the actor's choice. Too much genital thrusting, as it were. <laughs> yes, yes, that's the term I'm looking for. For a lot of years, there were scenes that we didn't see in Black Shampoo, and that I eventually found through a um, Spanish bootleg of the film that included Jonathan kind of standing up and talking to Brenda at one point, Brenda, his receptionist that he falls in love with eventually kind of realizing, you know, that all of the chasing, all these, these women really wasn't for him that he, you know, had this figure of true love right there in the salon the whole time, which is very convenient because she's only been there for two weeks, but they have a very moving, you know, love montage. I should point out that this, this transformation actually happens in what I gauge to be about two hours at a botanical garden, and I believe Artie points out that she's been there three days. Or she says, I've only been here three days. When That's right, just three days. Yes, thank you. You know, three days, sometimes is all you need. Three days and a trip to the botanical gardens yeah. with the feeding of the geese and everything, mm-hmm. swans. Yes. I, I met a couple that got married after 11 days. It always reminds me of that montage in uh, the Naked Gun film where it's Leslie Nielsen and Priscilla Presley, and they're like doing all of this stuff, tons of stuff. This montage goes on forever, and then at the end, they're like, that's the best afternoon I've ever had. (laughs) (laughs) For a lot of years, we didn't see the entire thing because there's one part where what what I could deem, I guess, is objectionable was... um, Mrs. Simpson coming out and chasing her daughters away from Jonathan, uh, Meg and Peg. When she mounts Jonathan to kind of show Meg and Peg up and and let them know what a what a real woman is like, that scene was cut for us watching the U.S. version apparently or the old VHS version, and I don't know if that was an intentional cut if that was just a really bad slice like the film broke when dimension Mm. transferred it over or whatever it was but you know now in the vci version and in the old um spanish bootleg that i ordered from video search of miami way back in the late 90s you could see bush but you know (laughs) there was a little bit more to it and there was a little bit extra Mm. with some dialogue between jonathan and brenda which was not objectionable whatsoever so i i just think it might have been a a bad cut both times i i think it was a bush issue because between the mother and one of the daughters there there are a few maybe a few seconds where in the course of uh their blocking you see a little bit more than maybe uh, the mpaa was ready to allow that could be that could be 
It wasn't a time issue, was it? It didn't add all that much to the, the running time of the film. We're talking seconds here. So maybe the, the dialogue with Jonathan and Brenda was like an extra minute at that. But yeah, the, the shot of Mrs. Simpson uh, on top of Jonathan was like five, six seconds at the most. I mean, it was scant, scant seconds, well, almost frames. Well, remember, pubic hair causes crime. Like I was saying, there were a lot of things that we kind of would pick up on in the film, you know, the mirror shots and stuff. One of them was how long the entrance was to Jonathan's salon (laughs) and just how often people would leave the salon and would take them minutes to actually exit the building. And I still find that either amusing or I find it some sort of a, a very interesting like time device that they're introducing into the film. I'm not sure which it is. Exactly. I like to imagine there's a very elaborate hall of mirrors out there. <laughs> <laughs> so that uh, the the bad guys, when they come in, they can smash even more when they're destroying Jonathan's salon? In keeping with the theme, yes. And it also explains that why Jonathan would be able to navigate it so much more quickly than the bad guys. True. True I that. just came up with that. <laughs> I like it. I, I was going to say that um, for production value in your mind, it's guarded by the Minotaur. So it's the, the labyrinth thing go from the old mythology thing. Thinking about the duality thing that I touched on earlier, I guess that really plays very well into my favorite character, Freddy, mm-hmm. and the magical water that he has that makes him say everything twice. That's true. That's true. Jonathan! <laughs> How you doing, buddy? Good, good. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks, yeah. How you been doing? How you feel? Oh, fine, 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 fine. How's everything around the place? Well, everything is coming along pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. That's just great, really. Hey, can't I drink water? Uh, mm. Very good, very good. Uh-huh. You were talking earlier, um, particularly about Jonathan as business owner and the gay characters. And um, having read uh, Graydon Clark, the director's book, one of the more interesting things in terms of the thought that he did put into this was he mentioned that in your average black exploitation film, the protagonist is usually a pimp or a drug dealer or someone trying to get out of the ghetto. And and really, by the standards of the time, Jonathan's a very progressive character in the sense that he's got a business. He, you know, by all accounts is like, you know, a legitimate citizen. He's got a nice car. He's got, you know, women who love him. Like, he's he's really kind of like living the dream. And I think that was really unusual for the time. And I also, you pointed out that he does befriend these gay guys and he has a relationship with them, which... I got to say that, yeah, there are some terrible stereotypes, and uh, spoiler alert, there's one really, really horrible scene involving Artie, but I was telling my friends, like, I don't know if this is sad or great, but really, you know, barring, like, very few movies, this was probably, like, the most progressive treatment of gay guys at the time. Yeah, I mean, in just a few weeks, we're going to be talking about cruising, and... You know, that's five years after this, and there's, you know, some homophobia that that plays on that really isn't in Black Shampoo. 
there's some, you know, some name calling and that kind of stuff going on, mm-hmm. but it's always from the bad guys. You yes. know, it's not like Jonathan is winking and just, you know, placating Artie and Richard or anything. Mm-hmm. You know, there's one scene where they're trying to talk him into going to the Western style barbecue mm-hmm. and, you know, he's just like, okay, you know, and he, he smiles and stuff, but I think it's much more of these guys really care about me and they want to make sure that, you know, I get out of the salon. They can tell that I'm hurting because Brenda is with this dastardly Mr. Wilson at this point. Mr. Wilson? I never heard of anybody by that name. She seems content with her life, but, you know, okay, you know, I'll go with these guys. But he seems to be absolutely okay with them. It's it's Mr. Yes. Wilson and the chauffeur and, uh, you know, the, the, the bad crew that comes in. That's They're the ones that yes. abuse, literally, uh, Artie and Richard. Yes, I think it's important, again, giving the context and the time and all that, that... Jonathan, the the black stud hero, never sells those guys out. And likewise, if you recall, they go to the barbecue and there's this whole kind of running gag where there's another super queenie stereotype who's after Jonathan and they're actually keeping him away from him. So they really are kind of looking out for Jonathan. Like there's an actual relationship there. And I mean, you know, I may be like, it may be some wishful thinking, but it really is, like I said, for the time, like about the best you were going to get unless it's boys in the band or, you know, something that was you know, really, like, out of the norm. Right, yeah, most of the time, you know, a gay character in that role would be somebody to be made fun of Mm -hmm. or to be murdered, really, by the end of the film. And I would like to think that despite the bad things that happened to Artie, that he's okay. I mean, if Freddy can survive what he survives, I think that Artie should be able to come through with flying colors. Artie may need some therapy before he returns to hairdressing full-time, but... True. For the most part, you're right. Uh, the gay guy doesn't die, which, sad to say, makes it progressive for the era. <laughs> Jonathan has a very big support network, because not only is there Artie and Richard, but there's you know Ruby, the the um, another assistant there, and there's um, the manicurist. I mean, so he's got some good folks. And even you know when um, Jacqueline Cole comes in as the new receptionist, you know she's kind of you know looking out for jonathan as well when uh, she's trying to you know get brenda off the case because she doesn't know who brenda is at that point but you know they he's got some good people in his corner i want to talk about how difficult it was rob you mentioned how many folks that over the years we had tracked down and talked to and interviewed and everything about this film and it was really difficult to do for a lot of years just because this was a non-SAG film and there were so many people that were using fake names throughout the the movie. So like <laughs> I for years I thought that Sheldon Lee's real name was Salvatore Benissimo and I thought that um Jacqueline Cole, who is uh, Graydon's wife or would be at the time or a little bit after the time, I thought her name was Edith Wheeler. So when she showed up in other films, I'm like, why is her name Jacqueline Cole and not Edith Wheeler? And I just like blew my mind, you know, about this. But I think we kind of got a a tip that some fake names might have been used when uh, Maddox's name showed up as Jack Mehoff. No. (laughs) Are you suggesting? Are you suggesting that wasn't his name? Well, I, it did turn out years later that his name's real name was William Bonner, and you're going to love this one, Leon. He's actually in Orgy of the Dead. He's of one of the guys that opens up Chriswell's crypt at the beginning. Of course he is. It's all coming together. 
I, I thought you were going to say his real name is actually John Mihoff. That's his brother, I believe. Jacques, yes. <laughs> yeah, in the thing, you know, I call Jonathan Jonathan Knight, and really I think the only time that that comes up is on the back of the VHS box. <laughs> I don't think any other time that he, does he have that name. And at first we were thinking maybe like the guy from New Kids on the Block named himself after this character, but then we found that that might have been, of all the things, that might have been too much of a stretch. And it is a running joke in the film because we only know him as Mr. Jonathan, and then I believe it's the daughters who say... Is your name Mr. Jonathan something or Mr. Something Jonathan? And that's never really answered in the movie. He immediately distracts them by grabbing back his uh, tools of the trade. Which is funny because I remember when I saw this, and for a time after I would talk to you, I would just go, oh, Mr. Jonathan. You know, that was just like one of those quotable lines that I would just like interject into conversation and people would look at me funny. The the other thing that really puzzles me about this movie is why Mr. Wilson calls 841 on the phone and who's voiced by Graydon Clark and it took me years to figure that one out. But then he starts to explain what's going on with his situation and then Mr. Wilson has to say, I don't want to talk about this over the telephone. It's like, well, then why did you call him in the first place? He's a grumpy man. He is. You would think that he would be much happier with Brenda back <laughs> in his life. Oh, speaking of uh, Mr. Wilson, I, I, if I can point out another thing that I, I noticed watching this for the, the 200th time or whatever is that it, I believe we found this in the action and adventure section at Blockbuster when we first watched it. And it really is... Like, aside from a, a the reunion in the cabin, it really is like the first act is all sex, and then the second act is all action, with very few exceptions. It's a lot of action, especially the third act, which almost is one giant t- chase scene. Past the same log, over and over. With that music yes. just on repeat. Though it keeps you going, man. Yes. That music is, that's some of the best driving music that there is. I have to say that that's another thing that I think really stands out. And I believe that um, Gerald Lee was recruited for this. It was his first soundtrack project, if I'm not mistaken. And it really, it really stands out. And I mean, I've actually noticed him on, on some other movies. I think he, did he do music for Satan's Cheerleaders, maybe? Yep. But enough where, you know, I recognize the name and kind of listen for it. But, like, it really stood out. Like, you know, as someone who plays music once in a while, like, I remember trying to, like, learn those bass lines um, on my guitar at the time. Being like, wow, that's like, you know, that actually, the music really appealed to me. And I think it stands up. Like, if you just, you know, really, you know, for all the humor that's going on and everything else, if you watch that opening scene, there's just, like, some great, like, vintage synthesizers and, like, some really amazing bass work. And whatever they were paying that guitar player with the wah pedal, it was not enough because that guy is just working overtime. Well, yeah, and the music is so different from scene to scene. I mean, it really fits the action that's going on. I mean, the the whole He's a Real Man song, mm-hmm. and then you've got the chase music at the end. And then my favorite, though, I think is the Liquid Love scene which is just so different from anything else that's in the movie, but it fits the action perfectly. Yes. And then, of course, the Can You Feel the Love song, which you know kind of comes back at one point when Brenda is having you know, some difficult moments and stuff, deciding whether she's going to sleep with Jonathan, as if that's a decision for anybody. 
Oh, it comes back several times. They got their money's worth out of that song. And then from the music, it sort of takes another turn. And if it's still the same composer that wrote that as well, there's sort of that clowny kind of stuff when they're breaking up the salon. Yeah, there's a soundtrack album out there, but it's a total bootleg. And I have to warn people not to waste their time with the soundtrack album because if you're going to, if you want the soundtrack, do what I did when I was, you know, 18 years old or whatever, and record it right off of the, you know, the tape or now the DVD, because it's, that's what they did. I mean, it's got the dialogue in it. It's got the, the, the exact same music. And then what's even stranger though, is that all the songs are out of order. So it's like listening to the movie out of order. I guess it goes back to your Pulp Fiction thing, Rob. So if you listen to the soundtrack enough, you can kind of put together what order you think the songs actually should be. It's actually a way to sharpen your mind. It's a puzzle game that keeps you from getting Alzheimer's disease. They did a total disservice. I wish there was a real soundtrack album to this that, you know, in that somebody would, you know, maybe Leon would write liner notes to it or something because that would, that would be very appropriate. I'm going to take a break and play back a pair of interviews. The first is with Black Shampoo's cinematographer, Dean Cundy, and the second with the film's director, Graydon Clark. Return of the Living Podcast. Tell us about the masturbator. <laughs> oh, actually, I, that we do have a guy there that comes in at night, but our cleaning lady came out and goes, um, there's a gentleman masturbating in the men's locker room. And I walk in there, and sure enough, he's just there tugging war on himself. <laughs> <laughs> So like ESPN? Yeah, like, he, I don't think uh, like, he wasn't even like facing the TV. He was just like, Ugh. I apologize on behalf of my uncle. You know, the Dalai Lama's coming to Louisville. He'll be at the Yum Center. Oh, wait, never mind. That guy molested children, didn't he? And that's why she killed him. <laughs> we go from the Dalai Lama the same breath to, oh, he molested children. All right, that's a different <laughs> Anybody story. Anybody that then. comes in on that conversation is going to Never mind. I'm about an but the reason I thought it was funny is because it's got a message on my phone. But somebody <laughs> invited me to an Ultimate Frisbee <laughs> party down at Waterfront for next Sunday. And somebody's response was, I'd love to make it, but I'm going to see the Dalai Lama, and I don't know how late that gets out. I was like, how awesome of an excuse is that? They're going to, is he just, they're going to watch him. Yeah, he's doing that. Like he's just he's speaking. Scared. He's gonna come in covered in Nutella <laughs> <laughs> and sing to some bananas. Now part of the 76th Street Network. Find them on iTunes.com and Stitcher.com by searching 76th Street Network. Also find them on Facebook.com as well as on Twitter at 245T Studios. Hi, my name's Chris, and uh, I've got Stephen Seagal on the old dog and bone. Stephen. Yes. Have you ever desired to hear a weekly movie podcast hosted by two fellows from the northeast of England who run their little hands through the week's movie news and then cap it off with a review or two, ranging from all sorts of genres, kung fu, anime, straight to video, tomfoolery, bit of horror? Uh, no. Well, you're a dick who doesn't know what he's talking about. I don't even know why I'm asking you. I'm sure there's other people out there who have desired to hear such a thing. So if you're one of those lovely people, pop on over to wafufm.com. That's W A F U fm.com and check out the show you can also find us on itunes talk show and facebook at facebook.com forward slash wafu blog wafu fm it's a podcast that's good and stuff <laughs> shut up steve hey iris you know what we should do we should try to get fred Olin ray on the show why would he want to come on our show hi this is fred Olin ray and you're listening to the badasses boobs and body count podcast okay what about olaf ittenbach germany's splatter king uh, that'd be great, but I doubt he speaks any English. I'm Olaf Hittenbach, and you're listening to the Badasses Boobs 
and Body Count Podcast. What about the director of Blood Sucking Freaks, Joel M. Reed? Isn't he dead? This is Joel M. Reed, and you're listening to Badass Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. No, Iris, he's not. Hello, I'm Mike, host to the Badass Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. And I'm Iris, co-host of the Badass Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. Every week in I, Iris, discuss lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. Mike and I discuss films like The Black Godfather, The Beast That Killed Women, and Biozombie, to name just a few. And every now and then, we get to speak with the people behind all the films we love to talk about. Okay, how about this, Mike? Let's get Andy Sidaris on the show and talk girls, guns, and G-strings. Um, yeah, Iris, he's actually really dead, but we did manage to talk to his wife, Arlene, way back in episode 20. Well, I suppose that's the next best thing. Yeah, I suppose so. So the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts podcast can be found on iTunes, on Stitcher's Smart Radio, and on SoundCloud. Just search for the BB&BC podcast to start listening today. You can also visit the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Okay, Iris, did you keep track of the boob and body counts on the film we're discussing next week? Uh, no, I thought you were doing that this week. No, I'm no, I no, uh-uh. no. I've seen this. Uh, boy, no, it we're was have you. To, it was you. Uh, look, from now on, let's both do that. Okay, that sounds good. Black shampoo. Black shampoo, the motion picture. Straight up. <laughs> Uh, let's go. They ain't never seen how the black man move. Bitches on my stick, that's black bamboo. I be trying to eat like the black man do, then a nigga stay clean, that's black shampoo. They ain't never seen how the black man move. Bitches on my stick, that's black bamboo. I be trying to eat like the black man do, then a nigga stay clean, that's black shampoo. Cool the motherfucker, put a tan in the beat. Hell, I'll let the broom, hit the sand of the heat. Like, do they have a loop? Put a tan in the leak. Can I sip it on the broom, little pan in the wig? Can I drink it up? With a rats of fail, so we mix it up. Little less of fail, mommy twist it up. Such a sex appeal. Time is ticking up, so what the heck you did? Peeping wavy hands to this. So the ladies in the room looking scandalous. Screaming flies, be the team, understand the click. Can't saucy up the goose, couple grand. Tell me how you got involved with black shampoo. Well, it was an interesting moment in my life, you might say. Black shampoo was going to be uh, shot by a friend of mine, and I was going to be the gaffer. And uh, I had uh, recently built a truck, a production van called the movie van. I was introduced to the director, Graydon, producer director, Graydon Clark, and we uh, started, and at the end of the uh, first day, you know, I thought it had gone pretty well. The next morning, um, I walked onto the, I think we were on a little stage, and um, Graydon came up to me and said, uh, did I hear the news? I said, what news? Well, Michael, the cameraman, uh, had been in a car accident last night, and uh, he's okay, but uh, he's in pain and so forth, and so he doesn't think he'll be able to finish the movie. And I said, oh, well, what are you going to do? He said, well, we've got to keep going. Um, I'll have to see if I can find someone to replace him. But in the meantime, uh, you know, and I had done a couple of little short films and stuff, uh, and uh, he said, why don't you uh, just fill in? We'll, we'll do it today with you. And I said, oh, okay, that's that sounds good. So um, we worked uh, for that day, myself becoming the director of photography. And um, the next morning I went to uh, Graydon and 
said, did you find anybody? He said, well, but let's, let's just see how it goes. So um, at the end of the first week where I had been, you know, shooting the whole time and Graydon hadn't really looked for anyone, um, I was sitting on the dolly and Graydon uh, sat down next to me and um, said, you know, um, you, you're pretty good at this. Maybe you ought to think about doing this. And I said, oh, well, to tell you the truth, that's what I actually want to do is be the director of photography. She said, oh, okay, that's great. Well, let's finish the movie. So uh, it was one of those quirks of fate that uh, led me to becoming the director of photography on on Black Shampoo. Now, you said you had done some short work before that. It was So this was your first time as a full-fledged feature director of p- photography? Yeah, um, I had uh, done a, a little bit of work uh, w- with a uh, a guy who who had uh, been a uh, big time editor on a lot of uh, episodic television at Warner Brothers. He had made a career out of uh, l- later in his life uh, fixing movies, and it was the period of of low budget movies. You know, one of the things that. Uh, sort of made it possible for me to get in was the fact that that there was a market for B-movies, as they've become known. Um, There were drive-in theaters still, and they needed uh, product. And uh, so it was possible to make, uh, you know, these little kind of grindhouse movies, schlock movies, horror films (laughs) about uh, creatures and stuff. It was a case of... uh, as a director, this guy would take movies that people would come to him and say, yeah, I, I've got this little movie, but it, it doesn't have a story or the story falls apart. What should I do? And Herb, Herb Strzok, would, uh, would look at the movie and, and then uh, write another scene, and he'd write something that explains this moment, and then he'd write a little car chase. And uh, we would go out for like three days, and shoot bits and pieces of a movie. And he would cut them in. And um, in general, it would improve the film. I, it gave me an opportunity to, um, you know, sort of solve the, the problems of shooting feature films. But a couple days here, a couple days there. Black Shampoo was the first full feature that I had um, had the opportunity to do. Tell me a little bit more about the movie, Van. What was that? I had uh, felt that for a couple of reasons, a lot of the low-budget films that I had been doing a little various things on, like uh, a little makeup here and some special effects there, always suffered from not having enough equipment of of uh, uh, an assortment of of good equipment and so forth because the budget constraints meant that they had to go to rental houses and and get smaller packages and stuff. So I, I said, well, there was this guy who had built the Cinemobile back in the, hmm, I guess, early 70s, late 60s. And uh, they, they were used on some episodic television. I Spy was the, the uh, famous one. So I said, well, that sounds perfect for low-budget films. So um, I got a, a large Dodge Maxivan, which um, was relatively new at the time, and cut extra doors and put them on and compartmentalized it with, um, you know, plywood compartments, a, a very complex sort of egg crate thing where everything just fit together carefully. And in it, I had three 
Aeroflex 2C cameras and two blimps and an assortment of lenses and accessories for the cameras. And then uh, two Nagra recorders and microphones for the sound department. Uh, it had about 30 different lights in it for, um, you know, the electrical stuff. And then a small uh, grip package. Um, and it was just enough to uh, sort of do the job. Uh, and, in fact, you know, do stuff a little better than uh, was being done uh, by other equipment packages. And then, um, and I, I also felt that it would be a good calling card and, and um, you know, an incentive to hire me to um, shoot uh, movies. So um, it actually turned out to be that uh, because I was able to, um, you know, package it and um, get noticed and then, um, you know, shoot a movie. And then uh, as as is the case with um, a lot of, you know, the, the film business, it's all networking, word of mouth, how successful was your last movie, and so forth. So um, the uh, the films that I worked on, um, I, I had the advantage of my own package of equipment, so I knew exactly what I had and how to use it. Um, and also uh, it gave me the opportunity to uh, really learn the craft and, and art of cinematography. Right. Yeah, you're kind of a one-stop shop kind of guy, right? Exactly. Yeah, and I had a, I had a basic crew that I, you know, provided uh, that I worked with. So, it was a, a package deal, which um, seemed to work out uh, for various shows. I did five movies with Graydon. That was my introduction to uh, John Carpenter, and did uh, Halloween and and other Carpenter movies and and so forth. Yeah, you're kind of Graydon's go-to guy for quite a while after Black Shampoo. Yeah, you know, it seemed to work out. And uh, it's funny because uh, he's he's retired in, in Vegas. So anytime I've been there, I in the last couple of years, I, I give him a call and we go out to lunch and, uh, and uh, reminisce about the old days. Black Shampoo, it's not the most typical movie. I'm sure dealing with kind of those pickups that you were doing for the other guy that you were kind of used to this idea of exploitation films and they were kind of de rigor at the time, but what was your, your feelings about black shampoo? It was a, an era of, uh, you know, the black exploitation movies. And, um, it, it, I don't know. I've, I've always just sort of accepted, uh, the, the way the winds blow in the film industry, you know, they, they react to the audience and the audience reacts to them. You know, so it's this oddly symbiotic relationship, and um, <clears throat> so I, I think that um, I had seen Shampoo, of course, and and knew the the culture of uh, black black exploitation, and um, so I said, oh well, all right, seems reasonable to me, and um, you know, so you just uh, worked on it, and and um, you know, it's it's sort of like. Um, whenever I do a, a, a lecture or something at a film school, people always ask, you know, what's your advice for up-and-coming film students? And I, I can, um, I, I can offer with a certain amount of authority, um, you know, my my point of view because that's exactly what I did. I was a film student who came up, as opposed to, you know, I have colleagues who uh, joined the union as a uh, loader and worked their way up through the studio system and never, you know, never really um, 
got into that sort of culture of filmmaking. And um, so I, I um, offer them the advice that I always sort of adhere to, which is take any job you can get. The corollary to that is, and, and you know, don't ask them how much are you going to pay me. Just take the job because it will lead somewhere. You know, 80% of the time, I think the jobs I did did lead somewhere. Yeah, you were doing just some amazing, I mean, well, your whole career has been amazing, but really looking back at those first few years, just the exploitation directors that you were dealing with, I mean, uh, Don Edmonds and, you know, doing um, Ilsa, Harem Keeper of the Oil Sheik and doing Bare Knuckles, and then even working with the Corman guys doing Rock and Roll High School. I mean, just great stuff. You know my resume better than I do. I worked on those? Oh, oh, good. Apparently so. Oh, okay. At least you're credited with those. <laughs> ah, so, so hopefully yeah. you get the checks for them. Yeah, I, you know, I um, I look back fondly, and a lot of people, you know, they'll read my resume and say, "Why do you have all these old movies here? Well, whoever heard of, you know, Satan's cheerleaders?" And um, I say, "Well, <clears throat> you know, there, there's nothing I'm really ashamed of. That uh, you know, it was it's all a case of." That's where I came from. It's how I learned, um, and I'm grateful for every single film I ever worked on for the opportunities that they furnished and and the um, you know the the training I was able to give myself and other people were to, to give me. So uh, you know the um, the, the little um, you know cheap uh, exploitation films like uh, Black Shampoo and. And seven, uh, uh, seven from heaven, or whatever. They're all um, how we learned, I think, in those days, and and they were um, they were great experiences because it was trial by fire, learning by fire. Because you know you had you had to uh, shoot it in two weeks, three weeks, whatever, and all on location. And sometimes you had the luxury of a of a little stage or something. So. Uh, you know, it's how, it's, it's, how, um, it's how we learned in those days. One thing that's interesting to me is you're a Michigan boy just like us and wanted to ask you a little bit about growing up in Niles and sort of the early days for you. Yeah, well, I think two of us were smart enough to leave Michigan, weren't we? Good, but go ahead. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, you want to know about Niles, Michigan? Yeah, I mean, I, I know that you're probably um, – when I think of Niles being a Michigander, there's uh, you and then Tommy James and the Shondells came out of Niles. So just, uh, you know, tell me about Niles in the early days. Tommy James lived about six houses from me. Yeah, on the same street. I didn't know him. He's maybe, I don't know, 10 years younger than I. So so I had left by the time he was a teenager. But uh, I do know the house he lived in and the house that I lived in. But uh, Niles is more influenced by South Bend than any other city in Notre Dame at South Bend because it's only about, oh, 15 minutes from, or even less, from the Indiana-Michigan border. And then South Bend is the major city 20 minutes away. And when I was a kid growing up, uh, we would receive Chicago television. So even though it's Michigan, uh, as a kid, 
I, I was not influenced by Detroit, which kind of is, was the straw that stirred all of Michigan. And uh, Southwest Michigan is a very, very, very conservative area politically. In 1932, when uh, Roosevelt uh, ran the first time, they sent a Democrat to Congress as their representative from the uh, county. He was there for two years, and the Republicans have won every election since 1934. And uh, so it's very right-wing, very conservative. I, uh, When I was a senior in high school, it was the uh, Kennedy-Nixon election, 1960, and I became interested in politics and uh, became a liberal uh, uh, Democrat. And uh, when I left, and as I and lived these last 40 years or whatever it's been, uh, I've become more liberal, more, uh, uh, less, less conservative. I still go back and visit family back there, and uh, we do our best not to talk about politics. Now, when you're growing up as a, a liberal in Niles, did they make you wear a scarlet L on your lapel? You know, uh, they probably would have, but I left early enough that they didn't really know it. Uh, I... Uh, Got out of uh, high school in 1961, went to college, played basketball for a year, and then uh, had, had a minor accident. I was working at um, in the foundry of Clark Equipment Company and gashed my right hand rather badly. And, uh, you know, I had to have stitches and so on and so forth. So like an idiot, I did not go back to college the next year because I was there on a, on a basketball scholarship and uh, I probably could have uh, continued, but I, I would have been, you know, a few a few months behind at least because it happened toward the end of the summer. And working at Clark Equipment taught me one thing definitely, and that was I sure didn't want to work at a foundry. Now, you gave quite a few people their start when it comes to speaking of jobs. Who are some of the people that you worked with for their first projects? I did, yes, but it was certainly by accident. I, I had no way of knowing that this particular person was going to achieve some success or even continue in the business. And uh, sometimes I would think, wow, this, this person is really good. More, speaking of actors, talent in front of the camera. Uh, this person is really good. They're going to have a career. And more than once, they never worked again. And then other times I would say, well, you know, okay, the guy was all right, but uh, nothing memorable about it, and they would end up having a terrific career. Uh, as far as people behind the camera, the one that comes immediately to mind, of course, is Dean Cundy, uh, and that is Black Shampoo. I had done a picture called The Bad Bunch, which was quite successful, and uh, I was involved in the distribution as well as the production of that picture. And I had sub-distributors around the country distributing the Bad Bunch for me, and, and they were doing really well with it. So they would call me and say, Graydon, what's your next film? What's your next film? And I, I wasn't sure. And they would say, listen, you have to do another black exploitation picture. So I thought about it, and uh, the, the Bad Bunch is about a, 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 a group of young African-American uh guys who uh, encounter a returning Vietnam vet and there's a misunderstanding between them and it's an action political film. But I didn't want to do another picture 
where the black lead was a member of a gang or a drug pusher or a cop or a detective. I wanted to do something where the black lead was an African-American businessman, uh, successful, and uh, not have the black-white element as the primary factor in the picture. So Warren Beatty was uh, doing shampoo, and uh, I thought, well, I'll do black shampoo. And uh, a number of friends said I was crazy because Beatty would sue and what have you. And I said, well, first of all, he doesn't own the rights to the words black nor shampoo. And secondly, he's much too smart of a guy to sue me and give me the publicity. Plus, you cannot copyright a title. He could have sued claiming that I was capitalizing on his exploitation of shampoo, and he would have been correct, but it wasn't really worth it to him. So anyhow, uh, myself and, and my writing partner at the time, Al Fast, wrote the script Black Shampoo. And I had difficulty with the financing, as I did on a number of my films, but I was luckily able to, really at the last minute, go to uh, the sub-distributors and uh, get an advance from them to give me the production funding. So it was very, very low budget. The total budget on the picture, Black Shampoo, was $50,000. It's the only picture that I made in the United States that was a non-SAG movie because I couldn't afford to pay uh, SAG minimum, SAG Screen Actors Guild. I put together the crew, many of whom worked on The Bad Bunch, the film I had just previously done, and uh, when I was ready to look into renting the equipment, and in, in, in those days, uh, I, I, shot, I always shot on 35 millimeter. I, I never shot on uh, uh, other film stock than that. But in those days, you had to have a laboratory and film, and the cameras were very expensive, what have you, where, where today, of course, it's digital, and you can make a film equipment-wise with uh, much, much less money. So anyhow, the cameraman that I was going to use brought Dean Cundy in to see me because Cundy was a very clever guy. He took a regular uh, van and he uh, gutted it and put in shells and hooks and, and all kinds of uh, gadgets to hold motion picture equipment. And then he filled it with his grip and electrical equipment and uh, he would sub-rent a camera uh, when he got a job. So uh, my cameraman that I was going to use, a guy named Michael Mileham, Michael brought Dean Cundy in to see me with the idea that I would rent Cundy's movie van, he called it, that, that I would use his movie van for our equipment. They brought the van. I took a look at it. It was terrific. Uh, Cundy really was, was a very inventive guy. I looked at it, and, and we made a deal. And part of the deal was that Cundy would come along as the gaffer. The gaffer is the guy that uh, works with the director and the director of photography, the cameraman, uh, in setting the lights and uh, handling, a, handling a lot of the electrical elements. And Cundy owned those lights, so he knew uh, how to protect them and how to do the lighting for the set. So I cast the picture, uh, John Daniels, was uh, a guy who who I saw in a picture called Candy Tangerine Man. 
where he drove or he played a pimp he drove around in a candy tangerine uh, Rolls Royce I think it was and he was very good at it so I, I met with John and convinced him to do Black Shampoo he didn't care that it was a non-sag he went ahead and agreed to do it and I filled out the rest of the cast through the cast the, the normal casting process and we were and, and I found a uh, soundstage Usually, my, my first inclination, because of budgets, is to shoot a practical location where I would just rent a location and bring my uh, equipment in and we would film. But because the uh, uh, shampoo parlor itself was such a prominent uh, character, actually, in the film, uh, I shot it in 12 days, two six-day weeks. And I think that the uh, salon was at least five or six of those days, so almost half the shooting schedule. And I couldn't find a salon that would close down for a week to let me shoot unless I paid them a fortune, which my budget wouldn't allow. So I decided that I had to build a set for the salon. And I, I, I started my career with a guy named Al Adamson. And uh, Al, uh, I worked with Al for a couple of years, and uh, he used a set a soundstage on uh, Santa Monica Boulevard in the heart of Hollywood. So I went to that guy and made a deal to have him build the uh, beauty salon for me. So anyhow, we're, we have the set built, we're cast, we're ready to go. First day, we're set to film. Let's say the call time was 8 a.m. I got there about 7 so I could do some pre-work and I'm walking and staging stuff in my mind and so forth. Michael Mile and my cameraman walks in and he had been, he looked awful. His face was puffed up. He could barely talk. His eyes were black and blue. He had been in an automobile accident the night before. It was, uh, he said it was minor, just, you know, he hit somebody uh, with the front end of his car and his head. This was before seatbelts, before uh, airbags. And his, excuse me, they had seatbelts, but he wasn't wearing one. Uh, anyhow, he, his face hit the steering wheel, and he was really messed up. I mean, he looked, it was frightening to look at, actually. And I said, Michael, Jesus, what are we going to do? Oh, Graydon, Graydon, don't worry, I can do this, I'm fine, I'm fine. Well, he wasn't fine. He was, he was on pain pills, and he, he could barely function, barely walk. But I tried to use him, and after the first setup, or even while we were while we were setting up, uh, it became obvious that that he was not going to be able to continue. And I had all of my personal money that I had in my life and everything I could beg, borrow, or steal on the line for this movie, and I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. So I noticed uh, Michael Mileham and Dean Cundy talking over in one corner of the set. I walked over and Mileham said, I'm sorry, Graydon, I, I just can't continue. And I said, well, Michael, I know I'm sorry, too. What are we going to do? And Mileham said, well, Dean Cundy can shoot for you. So I turned to Dean and I said, uh, you, own, you own the electrical equipment, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, have you ever shot before? Well, no, I haven't, but I know that I can do this. I've, I've, I've worked on stuff, and uh, I, I know that I can shoot this for you. Well, I had no choice. 
So I said, okay, fine. Uh, we, we both wished uh, Michael a speedy recovery, and he limped to his car while Cundy and I stayed at the soundstage, and I began to set up the first shot. And I, I remember saying to Dean, uh, you know, we have 12 days, which he knew because we had rented the equipment for 12 days. We have 12 days to make this picture, and... Uh, we're going to have to move very, very quickly. And uh, if I am a little abrupt or a little short, don't don't take it personally. It's just that we have to move so quick. And I said, look, if something is not right technically, if something is out of focus, this is in the days before video assist. So the director, I would stand right next to the camera and look as closely as I could to see what uh, the camera was doing, but there's no way you could tell if it was in focus or if there was a little camera bobble or something of that nature. So I said to him, look, if, if it's soft focus or if there's a camera mistake or if anything goes wrong, I'll never be pissed. Tell me and we'll just do it again. But if by chance you don't tell me and then the next day in dailies I see it, well, that's no good because we can't come back and redo it. So he assured me that that was fine and so on, and, and we began to work. And Dean was very uh, talented, very quick, certainly kept up with me, gave very good suggestions on what I wanted and, and would suggest, well, why don't we do this or do that? And then 99% of the time I would say, great idea, let's do it. And we filmed the 11 days with Cundy being remarkable. And after the first day I knew that... Uh, Actually, it was a fortunate accident for me, although I'm not putting anything against Michael Milam. He probably would have been as good. I don't think he could have been better because uh, Cundy was exceptional. But at any rate, on the 11th, on the 12th day, on the final day of shooting, we're out at a, uh, by that time we had finished the sound stage and, and, and we're out, uh, oh, north of Los Angeles at kind of a wooded area, mountain area with a cabin and we're filming there and. Michael Mileham showed up on the set. Uh, and Dean came to me and said, listen, Michael should shoot this last day because it was really his show. And I wanted to use Dean because I knew that, you know, things had been going well. And I said, Dean, are you sure? He said, yeah, he said, yes, Michael. So I agreed. And, and, and Michael did shoot that last day. Uh, I've always thought what a classy move on Cundy's part. So that was, you know, the, the, the production itself on Black Shampoo. I watched Shampoo and Black Shampoo, and I have to say, for me, Black Shampoo holds up. I, I like the Warren Beatty film, but it seems a little dated. Although, you know, you are dealing with black exploitation, I do think it still holds up. I think it's a very good film. So what was the reaction um, when it came out, and what do you still hear from people in terms of their reaction to the film? I finished the picture, and uh, I had gotten money from my sub-distributors, so my intent was for them to distribute the picture because they had advanced me funds. But uh, there was a company called Dimension Pictures back in those days. Larry Woolner and his wife Betty ran it. They did uh, Dolomite, and they did, uh, oh, I don't know, a number of uh, black exploitation films. They were the distributor of those. They, they, they did not get involved in production. Larry Wilner called me and, and asked to see Black Shampoo. I thought, what the hell, I'll go ahead and show it to him. I have nothing to lose because I really had my distribution set already. 
but I screened it for him and he got back to me and, and he offered me a hundred thousand dollars up front for the picture. And I had 50,000 in it. And I said to him, I said, um, no, I'm, I'm going to distribute this myself. I, I owe it to my sub distributors. And, and he said, look, I know all about that. I use the same sub distributors you use. There's about oh, a dozen of them at that time around the country. It used to be called states rights distributors, but that's really a misnomer because there were a dozen of them for the 50 states, so you you do the math. But uh, they were territorial distributors, really. And he said, I have the same guys in the same territories that you do. And I thought about it. I thought, well, I can take the hundred grand from Larry Woolner and pay back my sub-distributors, 50000 plus I would give them a 10% bump and I was only using their money for about three months and plus I would give them a 10% bump and they would still get the distribution of the film and it didn't make any difference to them whether I was the distributor that gave it to them or whether Larry Woolner was uh, in fact Woolner would have much more money for advertising than I would have so uh, I went ahead and made that deal uh, I paid back the sub-distributors, and uh, they were happy, and I was happy. And the primary reason I made the deal is I wanted to be a filmmaker. I didn't want to be a distributor, so I didn't want to get involved in the day-to-day operations of uh, how many theaters is the film going to play in Jacksonville, Florida, and how do I then take the prints from Jacksonville and get them up to New York City and all that which is a it's a real business that uh, Woolner was doing and doing quite well. So I figured I could take the hundred grand from Woolner, pay back my subs, and still have almost fifty thousand dollars to uh, go immediately into my next picture. So that's what I decided to do. Now the reaction to the picture. Uh, the critics killed it, of course, because it was by exploitation and it was exploiting. Warren Beatty shampoo, but uh, the response from the people was really very, very good. I saw it with an audience on Hollywood Boulevard, and uh, they laughed at the jokes, and then at the end, when there's some action involved, they they got into it and uh, gasped at the right time, and uh, uh, generally, the response was quite positive to the picture, and Woolner did quite well with it. Uh, He made money, the subs made money, I made money, and I was on to my next picture. Showing black shampoo to an audience as i've done several times i have to say that the curling iron scene never fails to get a really big reaction how was filming that scene that scene the critics often mentioned it and not in a positive way (laughs) every scene this is going to sound crazy every scene i've ever done whether it be a a gory scene an action scene uh, a fight, a love scene, a kind of comedic scene, or what have you. Uh, really, and maybe this is a shortcoming, I don't know, I do them all the same. I have full concentration on the scene. I, I, I try to stage it, uh, keeping in mind that I usually am on a two- or three-week shooting schedule. I try to stage it in a way that I can film it within the time allotted. I try and uh, give the actors as much leeway as I can possibly give them. Uh, so, so the way I filmed the scene, there was nothing different about it. I mean, uh, uh, Skippy Lowe, who played the gay uh, manager of Mr. Jonathan's uh, salon, was a rather, I'll use the word famous, I think that's probably accurate, uh, 
character in Hollywood, he had a uh, uh, cable access program. Now, remember, this goes back, God, I don't know, 1975, so you guys do the math. How many years ago, there was a cable access program where he interviewed people, and uh, he was very flamboyant. So uh, when it came time to cast that part, I knew him for, I, I didn't know him personally, but I knew his character from the cable access show. I got in touch with him and he was very eager to do it. So I could care less what a person's sexual preference is or what color their skin is or what their religion is or anything else uh, in my personal life and certainly in my professional life. All, all I care about uh, professionally is can they do the role? Can they do the part? But when when Al Fass and I wrote the script, we were careful to give Mr. Jonathan kind of my attitude about homosexuality. He didn't care about the, what, what his uh, workers did, and he was very sympathetic to uh, what happens to uh, Skippy Lowe and to, to Skippy's character. When I was in the audience, with mostly a black audience, there's a scene after Artie has been thrown around a little bit, and he comes into Jonathan's private quarters, and he's wearing one of these neck braces. And uh, Jonathan kind of tenderly, uh, compassionately might be a better word, touches Artie's neck, are you okay, type thing. <laughs> the African-American audience uh, hooted and howled and hissed kind of at it, which was disappointing to me. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm sure that if it was done today, there would be less hooting, hollering, and hissing. When it came time to film the scene, we just filmed the scene like I did every other scene. I staged it. We set the lights and the camera and put the actors in place. I said action and cut, and then we moved the camera into another angle and did the same thing. I had a pretty good laugh with your book, and I think it may also be on the commentary for the DVD, where you were talking about someone who uh, designed your set had an art piece that he didn't want touched. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah. There's there's uh, what looks like a I don't know cement or I don't, I don't know what it looks like. There, 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 there's an art piece prominently in the middle of the set. Well, uh, you know the set was being built. Somebody brings this art piece in. I said, oh, that's great. Put it let, let, let's put it right there. Never thinking for a moment that it was anything other than uh, you know a paper mache, which is what I think it was. A uh, 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 paper mache piece that somebody made in his garage, and it was just a prop on my set. So then I come to the scene uh, where where the bad guys destroy the uh, salon, and I had them tip over the chairs and the break mirrors and and tip over bottles of shampoo and everything, and I was ready to tip over this uh, paper mache uh, art piece, and the guy ran over to it and said, no, 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 you can't, you can't. This is this is a work of art. You can't destroy it. And I thought, now's a good time to tell me. I mean, <laughs> we're in the middle of destroying the whole set. So I didn't know what the hell to do. So I thought, well, I'll make a little joke of it, and I'll pretend that it's, uh, I don't know, bronze or cement or something that can't be moved. The two primary uh, villains that were there to destroy the set, there were three of them, but one of them kind of was the boss, and he just sat and watched everybody. And two of the guys uh, destroyed the set. One was a six-foot-six muscular guy, and the other was a five-foot-six smaller guy. And, uh, you know, the smaller guy was going around, uh, jumping up and down and having a good time as he pushed over stuff. And then he goes to push over this... Uh, 
what really was paper mache uh, piece of art, and uh, I had him play it as if it was too heavy. He couldn't push it over. He could have easily pushed it over. As I say, it was paper mache. So then uh, it's he can't move it. So then I had the big guy go over, push him aside as if, come on, you don't have the strength to do this. And then I played that the big guy couldn't move it either. Another thing that that might be of interest to your listeners is that um, when I'm writing the script, Al Fast and I are writing the script, the set is destroyed about halfway through the movie. And then there are a number of scenes after the set is destroyed. Well, with the budget I had, I couldn't destroy the set and then go back and put it back together and shoot the rest of the filming. So I had to figure out a way how I could use the set pre-destruction and film everything uh, you know, before I destroyed it, but yet it would have to look as if it had been destroyed and put back together. So I had Artie tell Jonathan that he would put the uh, salon back to make it exactly like it was before, that you couldn't even tell. Well, I had to do it that way so that I could film all of the uh, uh, things with the set being exactly the same way. So that's, you know, necessity is a mother, I guess. I wanted to ask you about some of the actors that are in the film. Can you tell me a little bit more about Joe Carlo? Joe Carlo is his name. He took credit as Joe Ortiz. The way casting works is you, as a producer, you make an announcement in a, in a non-SAG. If it's SAG, they, they have a ser- the agents have a service that uh, a producer can go to and give them a brief outline of the movie and the cast list with brief uh, explanations as to what the producer is looking for, you know, 23 years old, uh, tall, short, whatever. And then they, this, this casting uh, group, sends it to all the agents in town, and then they make submissions directly to the producer. And that's a free service to the producer because the, the agents pay the uh, casting service. But when it's a non-SAG movie, the casting service does not want to get involved because they don't want SAG complaining to them. So what you do is you put in, a, as a producer, you put an announcement in the trade paper, which is you can get a small little classified type announcement, for 10 bucks or so in those days, probably 50 now, that uh, says casting non-SAG movie called such and such a number. And uh, we did that, and Joe uh, responded along with... In Hollywood, there are always, always hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of actors who are not making a living. At one time, this goes back quite a few years, but I'm sure it's still factual now, uh, 90% of members of Screen Actors Guild were making less than $10,000 a year. You know, that's why when you're in Hollywood, you, you know, every waitress that comes and gives you something at a table if you're at a restaurant is really an actor or an actor or or they have to do whatever they can do to pay the rent. So when we put an ad in the trade, casting non-SAG, you, you would get dozens and dozens of uh, responses. 
And uh, the casting process is probably my least favorite part of making a movie because I hate to go through and see all these people and uh, I feel so sorry for them because I know that 99% are not ever going to make a living as actors and yet every one of them thinks they are and a lot of them, a lot of them, a high percentage of them have enough talent to do it it's just the nature of the business that they're not going to be able to make a living doing it. And within a relatively short period of time, most of them will realize that and become something else and, and, and lead their lives. And that's maybe even more true with non-SAG actors, although it's certainly true with SAG actors. So anyhow, we put the ad in the paper for casting non-SAG movie. And Joe sent in a resume uh, and photos, and we looked at him, and, you know, he had a look that I liked, and uh, I brought him in, and, and this is kind of the standard way that, that I cast all of my movies. Uh, I brought him in and uh, gave him sides. The sides are two or three pages, usually, of a scene that uh, you ask the actor to read for you. So you give them the sides and they go into an outer office and they usually have, I don't know, 15 minutes to a half an hour where they can familiarize themselves with the uh, scene that you're asking them to read. And then you ask them to come back into the uh, uh, office where the director is. You have them read the scene for you. And then if you like them, Oftentimes, you'll say, uh, I'd like to have you come back. Is this your correct phone number? Yada, yada, yada. We'll give you a call and have you come back in a few days and maybe have you read with one of the other actors that we are considering for a role in the picture. So that's what happened in the case of Joe, and that's what happened in the case of Tanya. That did not happen with John Daniels. I explained how I, I was lucky enough to get John to do the lead in the picture. But all of the rest of the cast, that's really the way it happened. That's not totally accurate because there are some people that I had worked with before on my other films, and even Jackie, my uh, eventually my wife, she wasn't my wife at that time, I had worked with her and she had a smaller role in the picture. And, you know, I had worked with Fred Scott before. Fred was in uh, The Bad Bunch. And uh, Sheldon Lee, I'd worked with him before, and Bill Bonner, and so forth. But but uh, I I always tried to use actors and crew people too that I'd worked with before because I would rather work with somebody that I know and I know what they can do and what I can expect rather than somebody that you don't know and you you've had a reading or two with them in an office and you hope that they can do it, but. You always have that fear that, oh, Jesus, I, I'm going to make a mistake in casting. And I, I always have a tendency to try and cast as quickly as possible because I, I once I've settled on somebody, I, I, I always have a backup in case something should happen to them. But once I settle on somebody, then I don't have to see any other actors and disappoint them and have them think, oh, well, geez, what's wrong with that director? Why didn't he see how brilliant I am? So, and, uh, you know, as, as years went on, I, I would see actors, and I would think, well, they're not quite right, and they went on to become major, major stars. I mean, I can think of two that um, did quite, quite well that I did not 
cast. I wish I should have. With a lot of the actors that you worked with in Black Shampoo, you had worked with them before, and a lot of them you would work with again, like Mr. Carlo working with him on um, Satan's Cheerleaders. I noticed he didn't work with Bill Bonner again. Can you t- tell me, in fact, Black Shampoo was his last film. Can you tell me what happened to him? Oh, Bill Bonner. He was a close personal friend, and uh, he worked on on uh, my other two films prior to Black Shampoo. Uh, Bill was, it's a very sad story, Bill was working on a film, I'm going to say Kansas, one of those states there, uh, a period piece, and he was riding in a, in, a, in a vintage automobile, not a stunt, just riding, and the car turned over, he broke his back and was paralyzed for the rest of his life. Uh, and he was a great guy, a very, very good actor, he was very good in Satan the Sadist. It's a picture I did not direct, but the picture that I wrote and we acted together in. And I used Bill, and I would have continued to use Bill on every picture. He worked also on the crew for me. But Bill had this terrible accident. You know, uh, fate is the hunter, isn't it? I mean, you know, he wasn't doing anything. He wasn't, as I say, it wasn't a stunt. It was just a drive-by. And uh, the car flipped. He broke his back. I obviously wasn't there, and uh, I didn't hear about it for a month or more. As I say, we were close friends, and I would call his house. I knew that he had gone to uh, Kansas to do a film, but he should have been back. I would call his house, got no answer, no answer, no answer. Then a mutual friend told me that he was in a hospital. He had been in the service. He was in a VA hospital in Long Beach, and uh, he wouldn't see anybody. I called and asked to talk to him. No, no, no. He wasn't taking any calls, et cetera. Well, maybe, I don't know, three or four months go by. And Jackie and I were very close to Bill and his girl at the time. A month or so, maybe two months, three months go by, and I get a call from the hospital. Bill would like to see us. He hadn't seen anybody else. So we drove down to Long Beach, saw him. This was a guy who was a muscle guy, a bodybuilder. And when I saw him, when I knew him, he was probably 200 pounds of solid muscle, six foot, 200 pounds of solid muscle. When I saw him sitting in his wheelchair, he looked like he weighed 100 pounds, thin, frail, you know. And, and I mean, what can you say to a friend who, who, who had been told that he was a quadriplegic and would never be out of his wheelchair? So anyhow, we were only there 10 minutes, and he said, okay, fine, I'd like you, I'd like you to leave. I have to go back to my room. So he did. Didn't hear from him again, called several times. Finally, I called one time, and the hospital said he's checked himself out. We don't know where he is. And I never heard from him again. In my book, uh, On the Cheap, My Life in Low-Budget Filmmaking, I talk a lot about luck. And there's good luck and there's bad luck. Well, Bill, unfortunately, obviously had very, very bad luck. To come back to Black Shampoo, uh, Dean Cundy had good luck in Michael Milam's accident, and Michael had bad luck. I went on to use Dean in my next, what, five films, and Dean, of course, has become one of the most recognized and best cinematographers of his generation, and uh, actually was just recently uh, named one of the top 100 cinematographers of the last 100 years. Uh, He deserves all of his success. He's an extremely talented guy and a very good guy, too. But who knows what would have happened had he not gotten that break. And who can say 
$50,000 movie back in, what, 1975 was a break for him, but it turned out that that's what it was. When it comes to the salon, I see all these bottles of this uh, It shampoo or conditioner or whatever it is. Was that some sort of like a product placement kind of thing? Yes, it was. Uh, We had no money to dress the uh, salon, so we went to hair care products and... uh, uh, Oh, any, any other thing that you you could find in a salon, and, and we, we, we found companies. They weren't going to give us any money <laughs> because it was a low-budget, nothing movie, but they did give us empty bottles, and that's what those were. Even some T-shirts it looked like. Yes, they did. You're right. Uh, I had some T-shirts made up that said black shampoo on them that I, I uh, cautiously gave out to the cast and crew. But yeah, some of the product, I guess today it would be considered product placement, but in big films, of course, companies pay a lot of money to a film company to put their product in it. In our case, we got free empty bottles, and we're happy to get it. <laughs> the love montage that happens between Jonathan and Brenda, where was that all filmed? The shower was and, and the back room was all part of the soundstage that was built. So we were able to film any, anything in that soundstage. I think, now that I think more carefully about it, I think we had Thursday, Friday, Saturday there filming three days. Uh, and we used, you know, the salon itself, and then we had Jonathan's back room built just literally as, as if it was right behind the soundstage, and then we put the shower in there. The other one that comes to mind is the one on the pool table. I was thinking more where they're actually falling in love rather than making love. (laughs) I thought you were talking about sex. Uh, I get those things confused often. What we did with that, (laughs) Dean Cundy's movie van was very good for guerrilla-style filmmaking. What we did is we took, I'm going to say a half a day, I know during the same day, we, do, we, do, we did the exterior of uh, Joe DiCarlo's uh, mansion. But uh, what, what we did is we took a wild camera. A wild camera, again, the equipment is so different today that uh, things that I'm talking about you know, are no longer apropos. But in those days, a wild camera was a, was a camera that was not blimped, and it made a lot of noise. You could not shoot sound with it. But it was light. Cameraman could easily carry it on his shoulder, and it could be moved from point A to point B very quickly and very easily. So what we did is we took a half a day, and we took Jonathan and Brenda in a car, and I followed in another car, and Cundy was in his van along with his assistant, assistant cameraman, and we went to two places uh, around Los Angeles that, that I had previously set up. The park where they pedal in the water uh, is, is something called um, MacArthur's Park, which later was memorialized in, I think, a Jimmy Webb song, Someone Left the Cake Out in the Rain, something like that. And uh, then, then, then the uh, kind of a wooded area was five minutes off of the Sunset Boulevard, and we had a little restaurant. I shouldn't say a little restaurant. We had a restaurant that was right on Sunset Boulevard. And we shot all that very quickly. Uh, and the idea was to have a song over it. 
And I was very fortunate to get a terrific guy to do the music, Gerald Lee, who ended up doing the music on four or five of my films. And uh, so it was filmed guerrilla style, without permits, without police, just to uh, pull the van to a stop on the side of the road, have uh, Jonathan. If my recollection is correct, I think you'll see they're all in the same wardrobe. So there was no wardrobe change. It's supposed to take place really in one day. We would pull the van on the side of the road, and I would jump out in the car behind him, and I would go to Jonathan and Brenda and say, okay, here, here's what you do. Go out there and walk and hold hands and do this and stop and uh, give her a flower or a kiss or whatever. And uh, we'd film it and move on to the next one. Where was the Western-style barbecue filmed at? That was in a ranch out in the northern section of the San Fernando Valley. And uh, that was a full day of a 12-day schedule because there was nothing else we could film around it. So it was a separate location. We just rented a uh, ranch that was out there. And we told everybody that we knew to come and participate, and we would feed them. So that's the way we filmed it. We, 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 we filmed as an uh, uh, actual ranch out there. And it, it was <laughs> I filmed at the end of the uh, sequence a major pie fight, a like custard pie fight. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, Larry Woolner at Dimension Pictures cut that from the movie. In the time that I've known Mike, actually when I first met Mike, he was putting out his book on uh, Impossible Funky, the Cashers to Cinemark collection of uh, stuff from all of his zines. And there was a whole section on black shampoo in there, a whole big section. And yeah. when I met him, we also had the screening and all that. And I was wondering, since he's not probably going to ask you this, so I will ask you this. What did you think when Mike got in touch and said, this is my favorite film of all time and I want to know so much about this film? Did you think he was I a little thought, off? What a brilliant guy he is. I mean, my <laughs> God, this guy's very perceptive. No, actually what happened is Earl Watson, my editor, uh, who I used on many, many, many films and was a great, great editor. Uh, Black Shampoo really was the first film he ever edited. He was my assistant on The Bad Bunch. And he went on to have a lengthy, lengthy career cutting many, many big films. Uh, he called me one night and he said, you know, there's this guy in Detroit who loves black shampoo? This would have been, I'm going to guess, 10 years ago, maybe 11 years ago. And I had known nothing about it. So I've forgotten exactly, Mike, you, you probably know better than I, how we eventually got in touch with one another. I would guess that Earl probably gave me your name, phone number, or website, or something, email address, and I probably responded. How do you remember that? Yeah, I remember getting an email kind of out of the blue saying, I hear that you wanted to talk to me. Yeah. It took me about a month or so before I could pick my job off the floor. <laughs> well, we can thank Earl. Now, now, how Earl found out about it, probably somebody told him. I, I mean, I, I, I don't really know. Earl, as I say, called and, and said, uh, there's this guy who loves black shampoo, wants to talk to you, and... and as I say, I must have given me your email address, and and I was happy to uh, make the contact. I was just wondering, just uh, what are your thoughts on sort of his his love of the film and sort of where it comes from? I mean, did uh, did, did you have any other rabid fans more than uh, Mike or even less? Because I don't think there's anyone that's less. <laughs> 
Well, I've had a lot of people over the years that really like the picture. When I go to a convention or through my website or now with the book, I get a lot of response from it. A lot of people like the picture. The picture is is, is an exploitation picture, obviously, a black exploitation picture. But it, it it's a, it's different in that it doesn't have the normal elements that you find in a black exploitation picture. This was about a successful African American. Beverly Hills businessman, and uh, he does not get involved with a gang. He does not get involved with drugs or any of the stuff that that in those days were prominent in black exploitation films. So it's a little bit different. It has some humor, and of course, then it turns to a little bit darker side and a little bit uh, of an action film. My distributors wanted a pure action film, so this is why. The last act of the three acts, the last act is almost all action, the chase scene and what happens and, and, and uh, the eventual resolution to the good guy, bad guy ordeal. Talked about it a little bit, the book, On the Cheap, and uh have to say it is a, it's a great read. If folks haven't uh, picked it up yet, they definitely should because I'm reading it on the bus and I was just laughing out loud at not only um, you, you know the great stories as you were saying about putting all these together, but just sort of um, the, the the various characters that you've worked with. And you did talk about uh, Menachem Golan a little bit and some of the uh, the insanity around uh, around those projects with him. It was just I, uh, you you must have extreme patience. That's all I have to say. Well, I, I appreciate that uh, you like the book. Thank you very much. Frankly, I can thank Mr. White for me writing the book because uh, he was the first to suggest to me that, uh, you know, with all these films that you've done and all the years and all the people, you really should write your autobiography. And I thought, who the hell wants to read an autobiography about a low-budget filmmaker? But uh, I would go to conventions, and uh, sometimes I would ask somebody, oh, yeah, please, 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 you know. And then, and then out of the blue, I would get an email, somebody else suggested, and what have you. But Mike was the first and got me kind of to thinking about it. And it only took, when I decided to do it, it took me two years. <laughs> I, I actually, and I worked uh, six days a week on it. I don't know, three or four hours a day over over a two-year period. So I'm glad that the, the response to it has been terrific. I mean, I've, I expected, frankly, once it got out, that uh, my website and Facebook or what have you would be filled with uh, criticism from it. But I've not heard one uh, negative word. So, so far, so good. I was going to ask, had you kept a journal, or was this all out of your memory, or did you go back and talk to folks? How did you put it together? I had a very good and very specific memory. When I would write about a particular film, like Shampoo is an example, I, I would put a DVD into my computer, and uh, I, would, I, I first would watch the whole film without stopping it. And then I would go back, and I would watch, say, say I mean, it might be a minute, it might be three or four or five minutes, whatever. And then I would stop and I would write about it because there would be something within that t uh, two or three minute uh, space that I thought uh, uh, a person, a reader, might find interesting. And I debated for some time what format to use. 
And because I've written a lot of scripts, uh, I decided to, to write it in a script format. And I started doing that. And then after, I don't know, a month or so, and, and, and maybe getting up to my first film where I directed, or a second maybe, I realized that it was too confusing to a person who was not familiar with reading scripts. So I went back. This is like re-editing in the editing room. So I went back and I consolidated uh, and, and, and made a modified screenplay format. Uh, I broke the each movie, uh, whether I directed it or just acted in it or wrote it and acted in it. I broke down each movie into screenplay, financing, production, post-production, and distribution. Into those uh, elements, then I, I kept the screenplay format for the dialogue. As I, 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 I watched every single movie that I was involved with, and uh, as I would watch them, I would remember, uh, because when you make a film, if you're the writer, producer, director, and I was fortunate enough that I had... <laughs> I had over a thousand stills from my movies, and I decided I ended up putting. Uh, how many did I put in there, Mike? I forgot. I think uh, I think it says over 150 on the back. Uh, 150 of them, and it took me some time because I would look at one, I'd say, "Gee, that's a good one," but then I had to cut it down from a thousand to 150, and and I used all the behind the scenes film uh, stills and and as i as i went through it again and again and again and you know i would rewrite and rewrite and rewrite which is the way you do any screenplay uh, when you write the first draft of a screenplay uh what you do is you go back to page one you start and you do a complete rewrite and when you finish with that you go back to page one and do a complete rewrite and you do another rewrite and then sometimes when you're casting, you realize, well, this actor can't do this or can do this or is exceptional at this. Let's add a scene or what have you. That's the way I did the book. First version was 600 pages. <laughs> the last version is 300 pages. Maybe I'll do a part two. I'm not sure. Well, I have to say I really like the formatting because it, it reminded me of Legs McNeil's Please Kill Me about uh, punk rock with sort of yeah. this oral history kind of telling, you know. And Mike knows this, and people who listen to the show know this. I'm notoriously slow reader. As a matter of fact, when we do a film that's based on a book, I usually can't get through the book in time, so I don't even bother to start it. But with yeah. this, it was a very breezy read and some great stories. And um, the, the one thing that did make me sad, though, as I was uh, reading the book, and I kept saying to myself, and you answered it a few times, is you know as things got harder for you to do productions and then you got an agent and you tried to go out and and get hired as a director i kept going why is nobody hiring this guy as a director <laughs> you know look at what he can do he can he can put him out he can put him out fast and he can do him well and um it it just really made me uh sad when i got towards the well end because... don't be sad because uh uh i i consider myself extremely extremely lucky both professionally and personally and um, I was able to do pictures basically the way I wanted to do them. I didn't have a studio saying, no, you can't do this or can't do that. I did have budgets that said, uh, no, you can't do this or can't do that. I was able to continue to do picture, basically a picture a year for more than 20 years. 
and uh, consider myself very, very lucky. Uh, there were some films that uh, uh, I think work better than other films. Uh, there are films that are more successful than other films. I think, uh, not to quote something from The Godfather, but I think that the, the, there's at least a thought in The Godfather that says, uh, I'd like to do it all again. There just wasn't enough time. I'd like to go back and do it all again. So I consider myself very, very lucky. So where's the best place for folks to pick up the book? They can go to Amazon, and they can, or they can go to i iBooks, or or if they want to get an ebook. The best place, I think, though, is my website, GraydonClark.com. The reason being, one, I will autograph the book, and two, I have a few, and it's getting fairly low. A few DVDs from my personal library that I allow a person to select from a choice. I don't know, about 10 of them. Uh, and I'll send a free DVD, also autographed. So they really should go to the website. But if they want a free DVD, they should do it fairly soon. Hard days of work. You had a hard day of work, baby. I want you to sit down, relax. While I soak you in my mentals, back rub style. Yeah, yeah. Massage peppermint oil, shampoo and pears, cinnamon, aloe, natural for your hair. Soap, lavender, soap, coconut conditioning, honey lather, blood flowing, love listening, motion lotion, breeze over the ocean, lovers, bath crystals, lover sponge scrubbers, hot milk bath, steam shower rubbing. Splash long loving in your oven Bake it off, break it off Till it gets soft Passion fruit, pussycat Wanna touch it off In and out, fragrance patience Hershey kisses, getting stout Stress relieving, soak your feet Air them out Thank you to Mr. Cundy and Mr. Clark for taking the time to talk to us. You can find links over to Mr. Clark's new autobiography On the Cheap over at the website projection-booth.com I mentioned a little bit as far as the soundtrack album goes and that's really kind of a rip-off in... You know, I've bought this thing multiple times, Black Shampoo, the film, on, gosh, VHS, I think, twice, because there was at least two versions of that legitimately released, and then I had mentioned the Spanish bootleg of it, and then finally they put it out on DVD a few years ago. No word on a Blu-ray release yet, but hopefully that will be coming. But the DVD, I am... Of two minds with that. Leanne, are you familiar with the DVD release? Uh, yes, that's actually what I watched yesterday. I love what they did as far as the restoration goes. Absolutely beautiful, beautiful print. But I have problems with the Mrs. Phillips scene. I have to say that when I showed this to people uh, for the first time yesterday, I actually gave them a disclaimer about that part and kind of told them the part that we don't consider part of the original cut. To give some background, I believe that it's... Just after Jonathan has um, been taken to Mr. Wilson's place, is that right? And he's just been uh, told by Brenda to leave, and she's not interested anymore. And Jonathan doesn't know yet that this is part of Brenda's elaborate plan. So he's um, very sad and uh, driving back. And um, in this new version, apparently they found some old footage where originally he was supposed to go back and see it's Mrs. Phillips. Is that right? Correct, yep. She's the one who he didn't have time for earlier, so he goes back and sort of uh, decides to have some hate sex with her in front of her house, and uh, 
It, you know, it doesn't fit, in my personal opinion, on, on a couple levels. I mean, technically, it's just, it's obviously, like, some wobblier footage. They didn't have the sound, so they had to sort of splice in some samples from other parts of the movie, and that part's really obvious. And on a thematic level, I feel like it's been set up that Jonathan's a stud, but he's suddenly fallen in love with Brenda, and it doesn't really fit to me that he would go back and and act in that way it really kind of shows a weakness in jonathan that i would like to think doesn't exist Hmm. you know that he is so upset by this that then he has to turn to another woman for me it seems like okay he's kind of made his decision that he's going to be with brenda so him going to mrs phillips really you know is a betrayal of not only Brenda, but I think also the audience. Mm-hmm. And so I feel very betrayed by that. And then also, yeah, it's the soundtrack is what really gets me. I mean, it has no business being there in the film if they didn't have the original audio. Yeah. Um, there's another clip on the DVD that ha- doesn't have audio. It's like a pie fight at the Western style barbecue. And really, I mean, they could have gone, if they wanted to be very creative, they could have gone into, like, the Mac and taken the sound from the um, the players playing softball if they wanted, you know, some goofy music and kind of laid that over it. But it just, yeah, it didn't work for me whatsoever to just kind of pick up little bits and pieces of other things. And I guess having seen the film, you know, hundreds of times now, it's really obvious for you and I because we are so familiar with these lines and everything and to have this kind of show up and have them speaking lines from other parts of the movie. I mean, it's just, it's just bizarre. It's just a bad decision. And I really wish they would have reconsidered that. I agree 100%. And you know, all my personal obsessions with this movie aside, I think it is obvious that, um, as I said, the rest of the movie is pretty technically well done. And that part, it just, it stands out to me as something where, it's obviously something different that's just been spliced in. I think even if you don't know the movie that well, it's it's pretty obvious, and I don't I don't think it needs to be there. I actually created a fan edit of this film um, and just basically removed that scene, and that was it. So when I went out on my uh, book tour years ago, I took that version around with me and I, you know, burned multiple, multiple copies of it so that I could, you know, give it to the projectionist, whoever was showing stuff in these different venues. Luckily, everybody was digital by that time. And it was like, you know, here you go, play this version. I don't care if you have the DVD, you need to play this version. It was really weird being on that book tour because I was kind of like a, I wouldn't say even a black shampoo evangelist. I was much more of a a Graydon Clark evangelist because Graydon was so nice that he said, basically whatever movies you want to play while you're on the road, you have my permission. So if anybody gives you problems, just let them know, you know, to talk to me and I have the copyrights for all these films. So I showed black shampoo. God, I don't know how many venues I showed black shampoo at, but then in Schenectady, I did a double feature of, Without Warning and Satan's Cheerleaders, which was really nice to see on the big screen. And then up in um, Montreal, did a 16mm print of um, Angel's Brigade, or a.k.a. Angel's Revenge, up there that a friend of mine has on 16, Dion. So that was really nice to do. But then, yeah, every place else, it was black shampoo wall-to-wall, which I guess maybe, Rob, is kind of why I hadn't done black shampoo yet on the show, because I think I almost, almost 
overdid it by seeing it so many times in so many places. But I was really glad that I kind of got to do that whole evangelist thing, you know, that tell a friend thing so many times to so many different audiences. Well, I kind of figured that what it was for you was you had written about it, you had put the book together. And when I came on the show, uh, I brought this up. I don't know exactly how we got along to the idea of we should both pick our number one film of all time if we have one and and do that. And I remember saying to you, you know, you have to do Black Shampoo because those who know the magazine and the book, there's no way you can ignore it. It's like 25% of your book is Black Shampoo. So to say, well, why would you spend so much time on this film there's obviously a reason, and when I came on the show, I was like, you know, there, there has to come a point where you have to do it, and I'm glad that, I guess maybe I was able to talk you back to it, and for me, it's it's a matter of why does it resonate? That's that that's really what I find interesting in talking to people who have who have been on the show with us, either they've written books or who are you know big fans of of a certain film, and they come on and they talk about it with us, or a certain director is, you know, what is it that resonates? What is it like, like there's so many movies that you'll see in your lifetime, you know, that they're just, eh, you know, they just kind of wash over you. And then you have a tendency to remember basically what I call three categories of film. One, the really great ones, like ones that are like truly amazing, you know, masterpiece films. You'll also remember the ones that are totally awful. These are just like the worst things you've ever seen. You're going to remember those. And then you're going to remember something that's rather unique. And then maybe I should throw a fourth category in something that has some of those elements, whatever those elements are. Plus in your case, you saw at a certain age with a group of people that reinforced it. It was interesting how we all kind of latched onto this to the point where it was like, you know, I guess we should reveal who we were, uh, Leon, as far as our characters and stuff. Uh, our friend Steve was Mr. Jonathan, so much so that when he was in the Mr. Riverview contest, his uh, sash that he wore across himself was said Mr. Jonathan rather than his name on it. Amy Chorky was Brenda. I was Freddie. Leon, do you want to say who you were? Oh, I was the chauffeur. A.K.A.? Um, Chuck Barris, who... I'm That's pre- right. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he's doing some sort of Chuck Barris imitation. I'm not sure if the timeline's right. Maybe Chuck Barris saw this movie and started imitating it. But yeah, the the hat pulled down over the eyes and the sort of staggering around with the open shirt. Hey, that's right. Me, Gene, Gene, the dancing machine. I, I don't remember who everybody else was. I know for sure that Jeff Dunlap was uh, Jackson, a.k.a. Mm-hmm. Black Baboon Butt, but I don't remember who, like, Maddox was. You know, you're, you're testing my memory. I should have I should have really brushed up on this. It may have been uh, Andrew Feudner, but... Uh, oh, that would make total sense, <laughs> since he was a total schmuck. <laughs> I do remember <laughs> that the uh, the two girls who I dated at different times in high school were were the two daughters Meg and Peg yes i always nice. thought that was kind of funny if you're out there and listening to this and you were part of this group feel free to contact mike and uh, let us know who you were we exhausted the cast i'm pretty sure and we exhausted the the memorabilia and stuff too i mean for a lot of years it was like you know, trying to find anything and everything to do with black shampoo, even to the point, and I want to say that 
this was a gift from you to me. Did you create a Freddy action figure for me? Yes, I did. That was amazing. <laughs> Rob, he took one of the uh, characters from, I believe it was Police Academy. W- Michael Winslow took him and kind of refashioned him a little bit, uh, especially because his gait and everything was exactly the same. The way his posture was totally the same as Freddy's and basically created a Freddy action figure for me. It was it was probably one of the best gifts I've ever gotten. I remember I selected that based solely on the fact that he had an afro with a bandana, and then I think it, we just kind of went from there with it. It was beautiful. You also told me that you bought a case of these. Yeah, I was very fortunate. I found a case of Black Shampoo DVDs on uh, eBay years ago when it first came out. Because I, uh, you know, talking about my friend Dion, who loaned me that 60 millimeter print of, of Angel's Brigade, he actually put me in touch with the guys at VCI who are putting this movie out on DVD and said, you need to have Mike White write the liner notes for Black Shampoo. So people have told me that sometimes their DVDs don't have liner notes to them, which is kind of sad for me, but those that do, the liner notes were penned by me. I was very happy that Dion put me in touch with those guys and that they actually took them up on the thing. And then I was able to put them in touch with Graydon and I think the the extras on the DVD include the the interviews that I did with uh, with John Daniels, Tanya Boyd, and I think maybe even the Skippy Lowe interview that I did are all available on the DVD. So you can go through there and read those interviews. And then they did I think they did a um, phone call interview with John Daniels to talk about that. And we really tried to get John Daniels for this episode of the show. And even though he's out there in the public, he's still running Mavericks flat out in, in Los Angeles. He's a little difficult to get a hold of. So... You know, we, we tried, and the funniest interview that I think I've ever done was the one that I did with uh, Tanya Boyd, where I was talking about a short film that she had directed years and years ago, and I started to talk to her about some of the other things that she had done in her career, such as, you know, JoJo Dancer, Your Life is Calling, and Roots, and all this stuff, and I touched a little bit upon um, Ilsa, Harem Keeper of the Oil Sheiks, and once I got the black shampoo, it was just like, okay, interview's over. <laughs> 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 and I tried to explain to her, like, yo, every year we watch this film. And I think she just thought I was, like, sad, pathetic, mm. uh, pervert or something. And it was just like, yeah, well, it was really good talking to you. Thanks. So, I, yeah, it's it's a pretty hilarious interview. I feel like I got cheated because the DVD that you sent me doesn't have the liner notes. There you go. And that was that case that I bought off of eBay. You and Dean Cundy now have liner noteless uh, DVDs. See, this is the thing that's funny to me is that you bought a case of them. Now, don't tell me that you bought a case of them because you wanted to be sort of this Johnny Appleseed of black shampoo. The reason why you have a case of DVDs is because you are able to wear out your copy <laughs> of black shampoo on DVD. It, it, they say it's impossible to wear out DVDs, but you have actually done it, and that is the reason why you have the case. No, it is actually the Johnny Appleseed kind of idea, <laughs> that whole idea of spreading the love and getting it out there. And, you know, you had mentioned that, that I'd written about it and everything. And really, when it came to Cashews to Cinemart and writing about this film, I didn't write about it until like the eighth issue. 
I don't know if that was just I didn't feel that my chops were in place or whatever it was. And then, of course, I asked Leon to write something about Black Shampoo because here I'm finally writing something about it. And he writes this beautiful, beautiful piece about it. It it was probably like maybe a quarter as long as what I was writing this you know novel about Black Shampoo. And it encapsulates everything that I could ever hope to say about the film. And the way that you started that piece out with just talking about the the way that the music notes slide from, you know, I think, what is it, like E to F or E sharp to F or whatever it is, and just how lovely that is and just how that takes us into the entire film just blew me out of the water. So that is probably the, the best thing that I've ever read about black shampoo. And unfortunately I didn't have the privilege to write it. So damn you, Leon. Well, Mike, first of all, you're too kind. And I have to say that, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I, I have the DVD in front of me with your liner notes. And I feel like the moment when I discovered that you'd not only come full circle and gotten in touch with these people, but were invited to actually be part of the packaging for the DVD release. I mean, as far as I was concerned, you'd arrived. I mean, it was... <laughs> it really is. I, I tell people this story, and they get tears in their eyes, because it's an if you build it, they will come. Because we really, again, to sound like an old man, we had no idea. We're, there were maybe 20 of us who'd ever heard of this thing. And that that's hard to understand now, because now if we'd seen it, I'd be on my phone as I'm watching it, you know, Google Black Shampoo, and I'd know everything I want to know. And the fact that we had this obsession sort of, you know, in the vacuum of the time, and now it's come full circle where here we are. And I, I would love to be challenged on this, but for better or for worse, I think that we might be the biggest experts on this film in the world right now, other than maybe the director and the people who are directly involved. Go ahead, throw down the gauntlet, man, because, yeah, I, I totally think you're right. I mean, it definitely has been a privilege over the years to be able to be uh, now part of the Black Shampoo story. I mean, especially when we started off, you know, all those years ago. I still think that one of the funniest things ever was in our high school yearbook for our senior year that they were listing, like, students favorite films and it's all these movies from like 1989 1990 and 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 a little bit earlier and you know it's like i can't remember all the ones but it was like you know pretty in pink and ferris bueller's day off and all this stuff and black shampoo (laughs) was on the list (laughs) thanks to amy being part of the yearbook staff (laughs) it's their time immemorial they'll be able to go back one of these days and be like these people really like that movie all the way back then and sure enough Open up the yearbook, baby. Yes, they did. As Michigan folks, and you had already laid claim to basically the kingdom of West Michigan by saying that you guys had basically co-opted Amway as your way of uh, pushing this thing out, uh, would that make Graydon the head of this line, and then you guys are sort of higher up, and then are you getting a little taste of everything that people evangelize out? Or your, uh, your your Amway line there, your your circles. But no, there's there's no monetary gain involved in this. It's all about the pride of knowing that more people are enjoying this. Well, film. I'll tell you one line that you can use that the folks over at Amway, because they used to live in Grand Rapids, uh, used to use back in the day. I'm not sure if it's still the case, because of course their first product was soap. So, with the case of black shampoo, there definitely is hope in soap. It's easy to forget that these guys, 
in the era before VHS were really making these things with the idea of showing it for a limited amount of time in a limited amount of places, you know, and making some money if they were lucky. So in general, I'm always fascinated, like, about the sort of second or third life that these things took on, on VHS and then on DVD and now, you know, on 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 the internet or you know i would i would love for black shampoo to be on netflix i think that that would just be a a great step for the movie and and really for humankind that's the thing that's interesting to me listening to you guys talk about it because it's very much this discussion as we talked about on the vhs extravaganza shows about the importance of vhs and what it meant to kids who are of a certain age people are of a certain age and you guys are what what I would say would be the second wave fan. You wouldn't have been the first wave fan because you didn't see it in theater. You saw it on video because you just stumbled upon it in a video store that just happened to carry these things because probably when they bought it, they were just looking for stuff to stock the shelves in 1988 because, of course, as we talked about, it was such a boon for independent producers and independent uh, filmmakers in that era when VHS came on because basically anything could get put on the shelf, especially for a long time with Blockbuster until they got stingy. We went through everything else that was around Black Shampoo. I mean, we tried after I think Black Shampoo might have been one of our first black exploitation films, and we went through like Black Six and Shaft and uh, The Mac and Dolomite and Petey Wheatstraw and all these different films. And Black Shampoo was the one that we kept coming back to. I mean, there were other films that we would watch that kind of got into our rotation. A lot of the Rudy Ray Moore stuff, um, especially uh, Avengers Disco Godfather for me. And I think you were more of a Petey Wheatstraw kind of guy, uh, Leon. And then uh, the Mac was there. But really, Black Shampoo was the one that we go back to all the time. So when we saw Shaft, we were just like... Don't know what the big deal is. We'll go back to Black Shampoo. Thank you very much. You know, much. the thing is, it's interesting that you say that because this film, to be honest, is right in the middle. And what I mean by that is it's not ridiculous like Petey Wheatstraw or Disco Godfather, and it's not serious like Shaft or Superfly. So within the continuum of quote-unquote black film of the 70s, this one's kind of in the middle. It has some aspects that are a little bit outrageous, but... You know, by and large, it's just straight entertainment. It just happens to have the cast that it has. So, I mean, you could have made this film, to be honest, with a with a white cast if you wanted to, and it still would have worked. There's nothing in it that is so um, within the stereotype. Like I was saying about Mr. Jonathan, he's not one of these hip daddy-o, you know, over-the-top black exploitation characters that we've come to see in things such as Dolomite or something like that. And he's not this, you know, ultra-serious, you know... Uh, characters such as Shaft, so it, it it really kind of fits in there, and you can understand why why that would be appealing to you at the time. Well, it's definitely in the middle as far as that continuum, and then I guess it's also kind of in the middle when it comes to the timeline of that golden era of black exploitation too, because you know you're looking at like Hell Up in Harlem and Shaft and all these kind of movies were earlier in the 70s, and then like a Petey Wheatstraw was like 77, 78, something like that. So with 75 right there, I think you know we're at this either peak or nadir, whichever way you want to you know look at it which way the pendulum is going to swing. And for us, we were right there on that line between those. I'd like to also point out that it's at a really, really, really fun time for clothing, which is another 
aspect, you know, for all the, the, the deeper stuff we talk about, when I show this to people for the first time, particularly women, they remark on what everybody's wearing and just that that, that was what was cool at the time. And it's, it's another element that just, you know, the visuals of it are like, you know, it just, it jumps out is so of that time. And some of it's just hilarious. And some of it, you're like, that is badass. I wish I could wear something like that. Jonathan's one piece outfits are incredible especially the like um khaki one that he wears and you know where's it zipped down to like his belly button so good now is it true that he provided his own wardrobe i believe so i think that is the case again i want to believe yeah yeah me too speaking of wardrobe leon i'm going to drop a bomb on you Uh oh you know, those, uh, you've probably seen the behind the scenes pictures of the cast members with their black shampoo t shirts on. Have oh, you yes. seen those? Oh, yes. Graydon actually sent me one of those black shampoo shirts. Oh, my God. An original? An original. Oh, my God. I assume that. Yeah. I assume somebody washed their car with those 20 years ago. That's amazing. I'm looking at some sort of like a light box or some sort of display case kind of thing. Where I can have that and like you know the uh, the original um, press notes and those kind of things like right next to each other, just have this big display. So one of these days when I'm independently wealthy, I'll do that. It's like the sports fans do with the jerseys. Yeah, exactly. And then you can lease it to the International Museum of Black Exploitation Film, based on the South Side of Chicago. Really? No, I don't know if there's such a place, but there should be. Oh. oh. That would be wonderful. Rob, you're teasing me. You know, yeah, I know. I was like, road trip. Or in road Harlem. Trip. <laughs> or in Harlem. You can put it in Harlem. You know, when we talk about black shampoo, though, Mike, and you being the guy who has his eye out there looking for where has black shampoo influenced or where is it being referenced, what have you found? There's actually a band now called Black Shampoo, and I'm not sure if they name themselves after the movie or what it is. It's funny, when you go out and you do web searches, of course, you're going to find all kinds of uh, hairdressing supplies, you know, black shampoo sinks for shampooing people's hairs, and you're going to find lots of uh, hair product and all this kind of stuff. Uh, The one that really got me a few years ago was when the Wu-Tang Clan started coming up on my web searches because they had named a song Black Shampoo. And there have been a couple rap groups that have named songs Black Shampoo. And there's even one that sampled the radio spot uh, inside of their song about it, which really doesn't seem to speak to the movie that much. But there are some some allusions to it. For me, though, the, the biggest influence that I saw and the one that just had me in stitches, though I don't know if anybody else, um, apart from you know my close friends, would ever get this. Leanne, have you seen Black Dynamite? Yes, I have. That final shot in Black Dynamite. Oh yes. With Black Dynamite standing there, and he's got this white woman on one side of him holding his leg, and a black woman on the other side holding his other leg, and he's got his gun out there. It is totally the poster image from Black Shampoo mm-hmm. with a. right there at the end of the film and i couldn't believe it i was absolutely gobsmacked when i saw that and of course the people i was watching uh black dynamite with were just like what what Mm. i'm like that's black shampoo you know and i had to run to the refrigerator grab my black shampoo refrigerator magnet that i have and come out and see like see you know and pause the movie see right there (laughs) and of course 
they didn't find it nearly as impressive as oh, I did. Oh, wow. That's amazing. You, you know, <laughs> a lot of people try for parodies, and that movie really did it right. They really did their homework. If there's anything else I want to mention, it's just that um, I did actually enjoy uh, reading Graydon Clark's book, and it's it's fun to watch knowing how fast they shot this stuff and you know talking about the camera work the fact that like if you see somebody out on the street parking the car they didn't get a permit and and block that street off like they're just out there with a camera shooting that and that's the kind of stuff i love i love knowing that and going back and it's been fun to look at the movie in that light literally sometimes in existing light knowing that you know so much of it was was shot that way just out of necessity all right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. That's right, we'll be kicking off the new year with a discussion of the Israeli film Schwartz, The Brave Detective, better known in the U.S. as Big Gus, What's the Fuss? A film that was once described as being more harmful to the Jews than Mein Kampf. At least that's what the co-creator Lloyd Kaufman thinks. We'll be talking to Lloyd about the film and also the 40th anniversary of his company, the house that Toxie built, Troma. Before we go, we want to thank this week's special guests, Dean Cundy and Graydon Clark. Also want to thank Leon for stopping by the projection booth. And as for folks who would like to know, Mr. Leon, what are you up to in 2014? Well, I just wrote and directed a video project. It's a fake trailer for a made-up drug-slash-sexploitation movie called The Pill Girls. Um, It's been entered in the International Movie Trailer Festival, and you can watch the video at thepillgirls.com. I also continue to front a cowpunk band by the name of Uncle Leon and the Alibis, and I just started singing for a a science fiction themed metal band called Reign of Zaius. And yes, that's as in Dr. Zaius of Planet of the Apes. Um, if you want to find out more about that, you can go to reignofzaius.net. Um, make sure you go to the .net site, not .com. And that's reign as in monarchy, not as in weather. All right, well, thanks, Leon, so much for coming on the Projection Booth, and we'll have links over to Reign of Zaius, Uncle Leon and the Alibis, and the Pill Girls over at our website, projection-booth.com. And I really want to thank everybody for listening and making 2013 a banner year for the Projection Booth. It's been wonderful doing the show week after week and having everybody kind of giving their feedback and taking part in it and suggesting their movies and all this kind of stuff. I really appreciate it what everybody's been doing for us. So 2014 shaping up to be even more exciting. 
over the weeks to come, we'll be announcing some of the movies that we're going to be doing in 2014. You've already got two months worth of stuff out there, including four great films that are coming up. Um, all black exploitation stuff that is going to be highlighted that will be highlighting in black history month, February. So you've got that to look forward to and, uh, you know, stop by our Facebook group and you can learn some more there and you can go over to our website and download our free app for your smartphone or Kindle fire and see some of the episodes that we have done this year and some of the ones that we have planned in the new year until then stay funky. <laughs> <laughs>